I think the biggest lesson I took away is that you really, if you believe in yourself, you believe in your story, you think you have something to say, you think you can make a difference to a wider audience and you know how to write, just freaking do it because you don't know what you can really accomplish until you get your teeth into it. What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of What Were You Thinking? Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. Is it a newsletter? I tell stories every week free on Substack and you can get that delivered right to your inbox to read with your coffee Sunday morning by subscribing at danagoldstein.substack.com. I hope you enjoy it. Can you imagine losing your job and then winding up in prison? This is exactly what happened to today's guest Phyllis Taylor, but not in the way you might think. Phyllis was fired from her career job at a law firm and found herself creating a life lesson curriculum for prisoners in five prisons throughout Ontario. Not exactly a typical career path. Her debut book is part memoir, part life lessons, part storytelling of some of the prisoners she encountered. And it's an engaging and fascinating read. I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Phyllis Taylor, author of The Prison Lady. I really want to hear about your journey to publication because were, were you, I mean, you were a creative child. I mean, I love the story of you sneaking out to go uh, go-go dancing. Yeah. Um, I don't like the repercussions of that. So you can yeah, share that. Yeah, you can share that with us. Did you always have an inkling that you liked to write or were you was it more music and motion for you? No, no, no. I'm a writer. Uh, you know what? I was uh, a fairly decent dancer who could make money on stage and, and buy myself lipstick and makeup and all the stuff that I love. Uh, but my real passion is speaking. I'm an award-winning public speaker and writing. I uh, studied journalism in Toronto at Ryerson University. And my whole career has encompassed writing, but not writing a book. I have done technical writing. I have done motivational speeches. Of course, I write my own and all of that kind of stuff, but not uh, writing a book. That That's new. Right. But the journey, the journey is, um, my journey to publication was somewhat ugly. And I don't know if you want the raw details. I'm certainly not going to name my publisher, but I have, and up to and including today, it has been awkward. I absolutely want the details. And so tell us about that publication journey. I guess at some point you're going to ask me what inspired me to write the book. So I'll leave that part out. We'll get right to, I've written the book. It took me two years and now it's, what do I do next? And so my initial thing was to reach out to a, um, a hybrid publisher. And as, as I'm sure you well understand, and as I, as I understand it, there are through 
three tiers. There's self-publishing, some call it vanity, vanity publishing. I don't like that terminology, but self-publishing as in you get your manuscript, it's PDF format, you upload it to Amazon or wherever and you push publish. That's tier one as I understand it. Tier two is hybrid. You've got the same sort of thing going on, but you have hired a publishing package. So you've paid for it and they include certain functionality copywriting um they will they will include um proofreading they will include editing they will include or not advertising or not and according to the package you purchase and what you pay for that was my first experience okay and it went from there somewhere else but my first experience was with a hybrid publisher not traditional with whom i am currently published but my hybrid publisher actually <laughs> After paying a very sizable package to get the work done and ouch, because that's not a lot of fun. And I, you know, I'm not rolling in, in bucks. And so I had paid the appropriate funds as, as requested. And she published my book on Amazon with the wrong title, the wrong blurb Thanks. and the wrong search algorithm words and wait for it, the wrong price. So I had a mild coronary, not a full blown. I mean, we didn't have to call 911 or anything of that nature, but it certainly was a meltdown of sorts. And interestingly, interestingly, I turned to my partner and I said, you know what? Everything happens for a reason. And I know that this too shall pass and something is supposed to come out of this. And honestly, and it's really difficult to convince people that this really happened. The next morning I woke up, actually I've left out a little tiny step. <laughs> my hybrid publisher, it's kind of important. My hybrid publisher had actually, because of the email pointing out the difficulties she had had, my email, she took my book down. So it was published for 24 hours and then unpublished. The next morning, I get a call from my fairy godmother. Her name is Rebecca Eckler. If the name Rebecca Eckler sounds a little bit familiar, that's because I interviewed her in season one, episode 11. And since that interview, Rebecca has launched her own publishing company and has already published a couple of titles under the banner RE or RE Books Publishing, whose aim is to publish female voices. We had been connected through a mutual friend, actually a friend who I'm meeting for lunch this afternoon. And Rebecca called me up and said, oh my God, I just read your manuscript, which I had sent her six months earlier, never having heard back from her. Of course, we're busy people. And she said, you need to go in my contest. And I'm like, what? kind of contest are we talking about and she explained it to me she had a, a publishing contest for canadian authors i believe it may have been it wasn't necessarily first-time authors it was authors who had a manuscript that was unpublished mine was unpublished so i asked her what the pros and cons were i agreed to be part of her contest a year later i was announced as the, as the winner and that won me a traditional publishing contract, something that many authors uh, seek, aspire to, dream of. My experience has not been quite as rosy as what I you would expect, or many who do not know the publishing business very well would expect, because you think your dream has come true. And actually, 
it's not been the case. So when that first vanity, not vanity press, but when the hybrid publisher uh, pulled your book down, like what went through your mind? Like, did you think uh, I'm done? I'm not doing this anymore. Or did you, I I suspect that that's not really in your character anyways, because after reading the prison lady. (laughs) No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm done kind of gal ever. But um, would you like to hear my response with or without a terrible swear word? Sure, you can swear. We swear on this podcast. Well, uh, my response to that was, oh, my fucking God. When she pulled down my book, it was two years of writing a book and putting everything. I'm talking 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. for almost two years and a couple of lunches, minus a couple of lunches, of course. But it was my heart, my soul, everything. I mean, I reread that thing. I'm I'm going to guess 30 times. So by the time I got to publishing, it was like, oh, and then it was, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. So yeah, it was a, it was a meltdown. It was a horrific feeling. It was heartbreaking. My heart was pounding. My heart was racing. I was in, I, I've never known a meltdown, though I've heard about them. I see them on the movies, but it was an experience that I don't want anyone to ever have to go through. So, like, I know you're a big believer in Beshert. Simply put, Beshert is a Yiddish word meaning destined, destined to be, or preordained, or intended. Some things are not in our control. You know, you kind of maybe had to walk through that not great experience to prepare yourself for Rebecca. <laughs> Boom. That's exactly it. Because as if you read my book and if you follow my messaging, which is some of it obvious and some of it's le- less obvious, everything that has happened in my life from the very beginning, from my father insisting that I be a competitive public speaker up to and including the fact that my hybrid publisher pulled my book off and Rebecca called the next morning, like that is supreme mm-hmm. beshared, also known as divine intervention. I love it. And it is up to and including this moment with you, Dana, is also beshared. <laughs> yeah. Everything is for me yeah. anyway. Yeah. So you said you were like writing for two years every day from 10 to 12. I imagine that's not like straight 12 hours sitting at a computer that's a that's a a high level of dedication I don't know anyone could do that you know what it's pretty accurate I would get up at 10 a.m and I would at that time it was COVID and I was quite disturbed because I was locked into a condominium with my partner (laughs) I am a very social gal as you may guess and I was for lunch every day and out for dinners and out all the time and all of a sudden I'm in lockup and I'm here with my partner who I love and adore but I don't need to be with him that much and so I would actually get up at 10 a.m and I would assign him to a room in the condo that was right on top of me and I finally kept assigning him further north and further north from the dining room to a bedroom and he ended up on the balcony so I would begin writing at 10 a.m I would probably run out to the kitchen about two or three, having not eaten but coffee. I would run out to the kitchen at about two or 3 p.m., grab myself whatever snack was the first thing in the fridge reachable, and I would 
much on that as I was writing, but I would seriously spend almost to 10 p.m. every night. As, as I was falling asleep, I was shutting my computer. I know it's obsessive, and I think it was my whole first-time author thing and editing and editing. If I would change a paragraph, I would almost go back to the first paragraph in that chapter and start over for flow. That That's that's how I did it. That's completely in line with the kind of person you come across as in in your book, in the prison lady. That you're, you know, once you put your mind to it, yes. there's there's no stopping Phyllis. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, up to including just everything I do. I have now been uh, in conversation with a movie producer, so it's just another thing that fought, fell in my lap accidentally. And here we go. You get an opportunity, you go with it, you run with it, you work it until you can't, until you really can't. But you got to break down a few of those obstacles and smash a few windows. Right. So why did why did you decide to write a book? That is such a great question. When COVID began, you know, determination is, is determination for all things. Myself and a couple of very dear friends decided that we were not going to let COVID get in our way and we were going to meet on a park bench about once every two weeks we were going to it didn't matter if it was winter if we were dressed in in coats and scarves and hats and whatever we needed to do but we were going to socialize in person person so we would meet on a um obviously an outdoor in a park um mutually convenient because we all live in di different cities actually so we met on the park bench and I'm a storyteller unapologetically I hold the table and I hold the floor and I was telling a story one of my prison stories and my friend turned to me my girlfriend turned to me and said have you ever considered writing a book and that night I went and I, actually my answer to her was oh my god no I don't have the time to write a book and then I was driving home and I thought yes you do it's COVID write the book and that night I put down my makeup picked up my pen and began to write so that's what inspired me to write the book but I had been asked for 10 years the whole time I was working in the prison and storytelling because there were stories coming out of almost every prison attendance as you can imagine I was asked if I would write a book because I was also writing life lessons to deliver to the prisoners so it actually felt like a very natural progression do you remember when you came home from that park, do you yes. remember what you started writing? Yeah, I started writing the prologue and I wrote from the first paragraph of the prologue right to and including the last paragraph of the epilogue without ever a hesitation. Did you write an outline after that of how did, how did you decide what was going to go into this book? Because I saw it as a memoir, and it did kind of morph in a few different directions because it's now a tribread. It's a it's a memoir. It's life lessons, but the life lessons are wrapped around, as you know, the prison stories. So because it was a memoir originally as I was writing and in my mind, I did it chronologically. I didn't storyboard because I know my life. And so I went back to, you know, my mother this and my dad this and my parents this and this is what happened to me. And it was a chronological progression of stories I've told all my life and now threaded them together. That's how I wrote it. But there was some reorganization in the 
publication phase. Right. How did you find that? I didn't want anybody to touch anything. <laughs> I wanted, I had design. See, I'm also a desktop publisher. So I designed my original cover myself. I did my original cover. I did my font, my table of contents, everything in the book, the way I wanted it. And because I had gone over it and over it and over it, pride myself on my writing, I thought, don't you dare. And I quickly learned that that is just a completely the wrong attitude because these professionals are looking at it from above and they're looking at it from an audience perspective. And I needed and then wanted appropriate input. So how did you manage to let go of that need to control and present it the way you saw it? I had a come to Jesus conversation with myself, the Orthodox Jewish part of me. And I said, you know, this is what these people are for. This is what they do well. I don't want anyone telling me how to do my job particularly, although I will take expertise and advice, but, uh, I think it was kind of an overnight thing. I had a talk with myself and then decided if I'm going to be a part of this, I've got to be a full part of this and not fight the system. I, I want to switch over to the background for this book and how this book came to be and how a nice Jewish girl ends up in prison. Um, you know, you lost your job. You were laid off. Most people would fired. be, you were fired. Yes. Most people would take some time to refocus and then maybe try to find a new job in the same vein of what they were already doing. But you didn't do that. Why? To share it, Dana, because what happened was I had <clears throat> a 30-year career in a law firm. So 10 of that those years, I was a paralegal and 20 of those years, I was teaching technology. And after 30 years, all of the details, of course, I won't, I won't fit into this short uh, summary that we have here. But what I will share is that I was, I'm going to say brutally terminated, but you know what? It was brutal only because I, I was shocked because I was well-regarded, well-respected and well-loved. And I absolutely loved my career, put everything I had into it and was doing my job at an exemplary level. So it was a personal thing and I was fired. The next morning, my girlfriend called me. So again, the next morning thing kicked in. I woke up, I made the bed. I thought to myself, what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life? My girlfriend called the next morning and said, hey, Oprah's coming to town and we're going. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> I just got fired. I have to take a little time out. And she said, nah, 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 we're going. It's $250 a pop. We're off to Oprah. Oprah came to Toronto, held a life class in Toronto, and had Skyped in six women from a penitentiary in Indiana. And I went there kicking and screaming, thinking, what's an Oprah and who needs Bishop T.D. Jakes to speak to me anyway? Do you know who Bishop T.D. Jakes is? I certainly didn't. So yes, I went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole to learn as much as I could about this man. Holy Hannah, is it a long list. So not only does he have his own non-denominational church in Texas called the Potter's House, which can seat 5,000 people and is filled every single sermon, he has also worked, obviously, with Oprah. 
and Dr. Phil McGraw. And he has written a number of books. It's a very long list. And he is also an executive producer of film. The latest one in 2019, A Dog's Way Home. Dog movies always make me cry. Anyways, among his honors, uh, PBS Religion and Ethics Newsweekly named him among America's top 10 religious leaders. Time Magazine put him on the cover in September of 2001. His album, A Wing and a Prayer, won Best Gospel or Chorus Album at the 46th Grammy Awards. And he received the NAACP's President Award in 2004 and was selected in Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of visionaries and influential leaders in 2016. But I tell you, it was in that, and that was, I was terminated in May. I'm sorry, I was terminated in March and we went to Oprah in May. And it was in that Oprah Life class that I literally jumped out of my chair as T.D. Jakes was addressing, he was speaking about gratitude, he was addressing the women, Skyped in from the penitentiary in Indiana. I literally slapped my knee, jumped out of my chair and started yelling, oh my God, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, meaning I'm going to be a motivational speaker. I went home and went to sleep as quickly as I could to get up the next morning and call every prison that I thought I might be able to drive to in a 20-mile radius. What is it about seeing those six women on screen that woke something up inside you that made you want to go and and be a motivational speaker for people in prison? You know, one is never 100% sure what their motivation is or all of the feelings surrounding it. But I'm going to take you back to what I think. If you recall my story, I was, I had a very abusive childhood, a very humble beginning. And my father was the man who was abusive. And at one point when I got caught sneaking out the bedroom window, hitchhiking down, down to Yorkville, that's such a spot in Toronto and go-go dancing. When I got caught doing that, I got beaten and I got severely punished. And that punishment was being incarcerated in my own home, in my bedroom. My father installed barbed wire across the bedroom windows and he boarded up all of the rooms. Blackboards were painted and installed throughout the basement. So perhaps that had something to do with it. I had an empathy for, an understanding for, and compassion for these these women. Not just women, but women and men. I have also always had, that I notice in myself, a draw towards marginalized and disenfranchised people. I don't know why, but I know that I have a huge, huge compassion, huge empathy, and some sort of understanding and connection because I was close enough without actually being there. So I think that that seeing the light bulbs go off in those women's faces and understanding that there was a, a possibility of making a difference I just figured I'm going to do it. I can do it. I'm going to do it. And nothing's going to get in my way. Another one of those, I mean, we have to call it determination. I love the way you set your mind to do something and you just barrel ahead and figure it out. I'm like that too. 
Right. But then sometimes I'm sure, and I'm sure you'll agree in life that you can make a decision and have some term determination to do something. And then you're on that path. And then you realize I'm not thinking of anything specific, but something may come to mind, but you realize, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to have a consequence or there is a, a, a bigger risk than I realize, or something bad actually does happen along the way. And, and I mean, it can be anything where we do have to pivot again. And I think that the, the quality of determination along with resiliency is what's really important because had I met with really awful roadblocks or, or a huge risk or, or those kinds of things that I had to rethink and recalculate, yeah, I, I might have been willing to pivot. I think that we need to be flexible and have the ability to rethink something as we go. I think that's very important. Determination is only good when you're going down the right path. Did you ever have any fear about going into the prison and and interacting with prisoners? No. It was such a blessing and such an honor. When I finally got my first interview, I laugh about it now because I remember Lori Shank, the interview gal at my very first prison saying to me, you know what, come on in. This was after a little bit of a hustling her because she really didn't want to bring any volunteerism or, or motivational speaker into the prison. And, and she said to me, what is it you do? And I said, I'm a motivational speaker. And she said, well, you know what, come on in for an interview. And uh, she said, bring your resume. Well, I went in a little overdressed and with a really professional resume from the law firm. And I was in garb as if I was teaching a classroom of lawyers. Anyways, another beshared thing happened, this divine intervention. When I got the initial interview with Lori Shank, I posted it up on Facebook because I'm a blogger and I was just so excited. It was one of these pinch me moments. And my former director, not the one who terminated me, but the one to who I had uh, reported for 20 years and, and we adored one another. She wrote a private message back. She said, are you by any chance going to Metro East? Metro East Detention Center. And I said, how on earth? What kind of coincidence is this? I said, yes, that's exactly the prison I'm going to. And she said, would you like me to put in a good word for you? And I said, does a pregnant woman ever want to give birth? And she put in a word for me because she had a connection at Metro East. She was working at a college placing security guards in prison. And she had said, she was going to put in a good word for me with this security guard that she was still friendly with. And by the time I reached the control desk and Lori Shank met me, she said, come on in. I know what we're going to do with your program. I didn't have a program. I was going to go home and write one. But more specifically, and to your point, you were asking if I was ever afraid. No, I was just so excited to be going down the path that everything was falling into place and feeling that this was meant to be, that I just kept going. And I, I really never had any fear. I, I think that courage and passion overcome fear. At any time during your writing process, did you ever have imposter syndrome or, you know, doubt your own ability to write this or wonder if anyone was ever going to read it? Or did anybody ever tell you not to even bother writing a book? 
I'm I'm stunned by this fantastic question. Let me just tell you what happened. <laughs> you may have to ask the question twice because I got it. I've got to first tell you this part. As I wrote the first couple of chapters, I was I don't know if you recall from my book. I was in touch with a father of one of my prisoners, my prisoner and his father, who he had called me. He was suicidal. I had talked him through not offing himself, so to speak. And I asked to speak to his dad and his dad is very rare for me to be intimidated, Dana, but his dad is a very intimidating man. He was uh, very affluent. He was a former, an elderly gentleman now, but he was a former professor of English at the, the university in Waterloo, as I recall. And after we spoke about his son, he, I had then started speaking to him more personally. I mean, I have a habit of doing that. And uh, we got into the fact that I was writing a book and he said, well, you know what? First of all, I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for your interest in our boy. And I want to thank you by asking you to send me a few chapters of your book and let me critique it. I sent him about, yeah, it was like another thing that just came together. So I sent him about five chapters of my book and I was shaking because I mean, do, do, can, can I write and this guy's intimidating and what's he going to think? And I'm talking about my horrible par parents and all, all the stuff that was, at, you know, at the beginning of the book. Well, I think it was 24 hours later that I received an email from him and he wrote as follows. I have read every page you sent me, period. Couldn't not read it all because I was so engaged in what you were writing that I just needed to keep turning the pages. So that gave me a huge amount of confidence. Your question, however, was about imposter syndrome. I never had imposter syndrome as I was writing because I was sending chapters to people like my daughter, who's my, my biggest critique to this moment. And also sharing a lot with my partner who was, you know, forced under the threat of gunfire to sit down and listen <laughs> to my stories and others and others that were close to me. And actually the gal I'm having lunch with today was um, quite involved too with a few chapters. It was after I had sent my book to the publisher and it was about to actually get published, the first publisher, the hybrid gal, that I thought, what right do you have to write a book? You are not a novelist. You are not a memoirist. That I felt that. But in the next moment, I said to myself, are you serious? Come on. You can write. You know you can write. People have already loved your chapters. And so I quickly talked myself out of that. It was momentary, but I know the feeling. Did you have any of your own epiphanies as you were writing the book? I think I had epiphanies like in the middle of the night, every night. <laughs> and I would wake up and make a couple of notes like, oh, my God, I should say it this way. Oh, my God, I should say this. Oh, you know, it was a lot. There was a lot of oh, my gods. And, and they always happened in the middle of the night. And I would truly get up and make notes. And it was I was I think I was sleep deprived because of this. But nevertheless, I just kept pressing on. What was the biggest lesson you took away from writing and and, and having your book published? I think the biggest lesson I took away is that you really, if you believe in yourself, you believe in your story, you think you have something to say, you think you can make a difference to a wider audience and you know how to write, just freaking do it. Because 
you don't know what you can really accomplish until you get your teeth into it. Because I bet we're all better than we think we are. And that goes for me because even though I sat down and began writing a book, I never never re really realized where it would go or where it could go for that matter. I was green to, to writing this type of, of material. I was green to the publishing business. I'm now green to the movie business, but we can learn because we are human beings that aspire to learn, aspire to teach, aspire to share. That's what writers are. That's who I see myself as. Now you sh inside the book, you shared the story. I forget her name. The the woman who uh, said to you, if you ever see me out in public when I'm out, don't approach me. Destiny, yeah. Destiny, right. So I, this is my question. What would Destiny think of this book? So Destiny and I, I love all your questions, my dear. So Destiny and I, are still in touch and um, I'm breaking the rules because our training, I was trained in every single prison. I was trained how to interact with prisoners, hostage taking, all sorts of, of training I, I received. And one of the things they, they tell us as a tip, do not interact with prisoners on the outside of, of the prison walls. And that's for our own safety, but I have made a decision because I am a bit of a risk taker and also a <laughs> little bit of a rule breaker uh, from birth. And I uh, decided that I was going to stay in touch with some very, very few prisoners, mostly, mostly, and I, I believe there's three, and mostly because I felt that my connection was strong, I was making a difference with them, and I didn't want it to end. I just didn't want it to end. You know, all of my work is volunteerism. It isn't it isn't me trying to, to earn a living this way. It's me trying to make a difference this way. And so who says that when prison ends, I wash my hands of these people. It just doesn't work that way in my heart. So I've been very public about it on, on TV appearances, on radio, wherever I go, saying, yeah, I broke the rules. So shoot me. Because you know what? I felt that I was doing the right thing for me, for my heart, for for my integrity and moral compass. Destiny and, and I have stayed in touch. Uh, her story is magnificent. She is a poet and a prostitute. She, I'm not sure if she's doing any of the above today, but that's what she was when I met her. And she is on the outside now in touch with me, knows about my book. I wrote about her. Any story that I wrote about a, a prisoner that I'm still in touch with, I sent them the chapter and had it approved uh, because I researched and I found out that's probably the best way to handle it, though I still changed their name and um, not really details, not with these guys. I didn't change any details. I did change the details with one girlfriend to protect her, uh, but not to answer your question about destiny, am I, has she read the book and what, she, she's very proud of me. My prisoners are proud of me as I am of them. And honestly, the end of the story with destiny, I am so damn proud of that gal because this girl came from a biker home where her mom decided, I don't want to be a mother any, like, really? How would I turn out? I had a humble beginning and had to fight my way through with a few things but I still had a mom, I still had a dad. She didn't have that. She was left in to be raised in a biker home and you good luck, honey. Did you get feedback from any of the other people that you wrote about in the book? So Citizen Manny, who is still my friend, 
Uh, I could call upon him at any time, anywhere to come out and speak with me or for me. Um, I would never ask a favor of him. I don't, I, I don't roll that way, but he, uh, gave me pictures for the book because when my first, uh, edition of the book came out, it had pictures at the beginning of every chapter and my now publisher removed them, but he gave me pictures of himself and he gave me all kinds of documentation about his journey and, and just use what you want. And so I'm in touch with citizen Manny. He's also, we're proud of one another. As I say, I could not be prouder of Citizen Manny. And I'm also in touch with, and I'm almost afraid, um, but Jason, who is the first chapter in my book, who the dad I spoke of just a, a while back, Dana, uh, I'm still in touch with not as much Jason, but his dad. And I am afraid to contact him too often because I live in fear that he will fall back into substance abuse and i'm just so afraid to hear that is citizen manny the one who hires convicts yes okay tell us that story because i think it's just ah it's it was such a great chapter about how things turned out for citizen manny so tell us about I, him i have shivers honest to god in this moment just thinking about it and the words that you have spoken that touched my heart because it touched you and I'm not going to cry, but here we go. So Citizen Manny, <laughs> I met him at the Ontario Correctional Institute. And Citizen Manny, I'll just call him Manny inter <laughs> uh, intermittently. Citizen Manny spent 20 years in the Kingston Penitentiary, which is federal prison. So he went to prison Kingston Penitentiary twice for 10 years. So he spent 20 years in there. When you come into the Ontario Correctional Institute, where I spent most of my time, I'm in five prisons, but most of my time in the Ontario Correctional Institute, it is a very special prison. It is a prison where the men, because it's a men prison, men's prison, have to apply through their lawyers to gain entry to that prison. In return for giving up any chance of early parole or any time off for time earned for good behavior, they get recreation, they get counseling, they get education, they get to earn their GED diploma, general education diploma, and, and they get me. So Citizen Manny had decided that he was going to be my friend because he was assigned to be my assistant. In every prison, I'm assigned an assistant. Someone, a prisoner who's of good standing and trustworthy is assigned to me to help me, help me with setting up my equipment because I come in with a slideshow. I do my own slideshow presentations. I come in with a slideshow. I've got a handout for every topic that I teach in the prison. And there is someone who will set up my equipment or assist me in doing so, give out my handouts and take attendance. Citizen Manny was that guy. And on our very first meeting, he did all of the setup and all of the above. And then he sat himself down in the front row in, in front of me and he said, I'm going to take a seat here. And I thought, yeah, okay, guess you want to see what I'm doing. At the end of my presentation, I have no idea what I taught that day, but at the end of my presentation, 
he started to talk to me. Now we had already straightened up the room and, you know, disassembled my equipment and all of the kind of disassembling that goes on at the end of my sessions. And he decided he was going to sit down and, and chat with me because he was going to become my friend. And he did. He started by saying, so I hear you're um, a Toastmaster. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Toastmaster, Dana, but it is a competitive public speaking platform. And it's kind of like going to AA, but it's for people who want to speak competitively because it's sort of a self-help group and it's become, I, I believe, international and, and kind of big. Yeah. So I was indeed a Toastmaster uh, back back then. And I had given it up when I went into the prison to do the motivational speaking because it's just kind of redundant. And when I felt when I was quote, professionally, motivationally speaking, I no longer needed to, to competitively speak at the Toastmasters level. So anyways, they have Toastmasters in that prison. And so Mandy said to me, you're a Toastmaster. I respond, yes, I am. And he says, well, I am too. And a conversation ensued about Toastmasters. What a great thing he did by finding an icebreaker. From there, he went into his whole life story and shared with me how he had watched his father shoot his brother in his bedroom one evening when he came home drunk. So I was also going through a divorce at that time because of a prisoner. I was leaving my husband because of a prisoner, again, beshared in my mind, and Manny was my confidant. So when Manny was leaving the prison, we had spent two years together in prison, and as he was leaving, he and I both felt like, really a difficult separation, almost painful, a friend and a termination of a friendship. And so he said, I'm, you know, I'm really sad to be leaving. And uh, is there any way we could stay in touch? He doesn't know my rules. He doesn't know what I'm supposed to be doing. This is all on me. And I said to him, yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot. I gave him an email address. I had opened up a, a separate email account, separate from my my friend account and gave him my email address so that he and I could speak only by email. I wanted to to really think it over. I wanted to make sure I was going down the wrong, the right path. And after emailing with him for a couple of months, I finally said, you know what, let's meet. And so I would meet Manny on the way home from prison every Monday afternoon. I would be in prison from about one to four and I'd meet him at about 4.30. And he would insist that he was going to buy me coffee. And though he was unemployed and I felt, geez, I should be <laughs> buying the coffee, but let him have his dignity. So I life coached him because that's that's what I do on the side. So I life coached him and life coached him for weeks, for months until I finally said, I think it was about six months. I said, I want to meet your wife. And then I life coached them both. And I never told him or them that I had an agenda or that I was even life coaching them. I just kind of kept that little secret to myself. But every conversation, it was giving him life lessons and then giving them lessons of, uh, you know, marriage and, and building healthy relationships until I finally said, you know, Manny, what I need you to do now is get your driver's license back. And that he did. So one thing led to another once he got wheels so we're now about six seven months out of prison spend his life in prison you know dana mm -hmm. he decided that how he could earn a living legally was handyman work so he started painting and snow removal and it, fix it and, and repair it and all that kind of stuff 
and he was very successful because he has a fabulous personality and a warmth and a heart and it's obvious and even integrity and that's hard to describe in a prisoner but just trust me for a moment today citizen manny employs other men who need a second chance he's very selective but he's also very proud of himself and so am i that's such a great story um, love it myself <laughs> what was the most surprising thing for you about volunteering in prison the love i got the warmth I got, the respect I got. I felt better there than I, when I, here's how my partner describes it. I absolutely looked forward to my time in the prison. It was like the the biggest excitement. In fact, when I was dating John at the beginning, it was, he was out of town and we were traveling, taking turns, traveling back and forth to one another, about a two and a half hour a drive. And I planned all my visits both him coming to see me and me going to see him around my prison attendances because I would never give them up. And when uh, we moved in together, I would always, of course, call him on my way home from prison. And I was high. I was absolutely high on life. I felt when I walked into prison and I met with those guys or the women, because I, I teach both, I felt like I was Oprah Winfrey, like I had arrived, like the the love and the adoration and the respect and just that I, I could have them listen to me and I could actually make a difference in their lives or so I, I determined. And I would call John on the way home and he says, this, this, this girl's like on drugs. She's so happy when she comes home because there was always a story and always a connection and always a marker where I felt I was making a difference. And uh, to this day, I, I'm still trying to get back into prison. Frankly, it's harder than getting out of prison. So why did you decide to write your book as less of a memoir and more life lessons? Did it just naturally flow out that way? Or was that a conscious decision? I'm going to say it, it just, it just flowed. I would be writing a piece of my life and then there would be a prisoner story and with the prisoner story it usually was born out of a lesson i mean if you recall that uh, time in the prison in the women's prison where i was teaching them about building a healthy relationship and one of the girls screamed out i don't have a healthy relationship that whole lesson prompted me to leave my husband it was it was teaching this gal about building a healthy relationship and then leaving her husband because he was a threat to her it was because of that that i went home and left my then husband and that was husband number two mm -hmm. and i was staying with him for the same reason she was staying with her husband i did not want to shame my family etc with two divorces no matter what but um so so you see how the life lesson was wrapped into the story? That's a perfect example of why it they just it was a natural flow. Will you write another book with more life lessons? Do you know what? I am being asked that, I mean, on the daily, and I just don't have the answer. Do I want to write a book? Sure, it would it's fun, it's exciting, it's it's cathartic. Uh, you're in flow, which is which is very good for our well-being. But um, time is of the essence, and I'm so busy now promoting my book, and now moving into this arena. I mean, I'm going to say, please God, hopefully things are looking very positive. The meeting again tomorrow with my producer. There's a contract, um, a preliminary contract. So 
I think I might get busy in a different direction. I'm going to see where life takes me. Good plan. I have to ask about the the movie producer and how that happened. Oh my God, that's an <laughs> just laughing because of all of these situations that are almost unbelievable. Okay, so if you recall, you may recall, I think I sent you the clip. I was interviewed by Steve Pakin. If you're from Toronto or Ontario, you know Steve Pakin. He's been on TV Ontario since like forever and hosts his own show called The Agenda. Now, even the fact that I got on to Steve Pakin was a whole other story of Bashir because it happened through another author who put the book in front of him at a dinner party and said, Steve, you got to read this book. You got to meet this woman. I believe in her. So I was on Steve Pakin. I was interviewed. It was such a delight. And a very dear friend of mine, she had taken a clip of my interview with Steve Pakin. It was a 90 second clip and put it up on Facebook. And after she posted my 90 second clip of my interview with Steve Pakin on Facebook, a man friended me on Facebook. And I don't accept invitations from men because there's too many of them that are wearing those army suits and they're up to no <laughs> And they're all orthopedic surgeons. <laughs> I know, like they're doctors and lawyers and you know what, like I know what a lawyer is. So anyways, I, I always check them out and I always check to see if they're connected to anybody I know. So I'm not insulting them when I block them. Well, this man was connected to a dear, this dear friend. So I friended him. And I also then went deeper into his profile, you know, the about so-and-so part of the profile and recognized he was something in the media. So I thought, okay, you're in the media. I've written a book. I'm promoting my book. I'll give you my pitch. So the same pitch that you received probably, Dana, with um, here's who I am. Here's about my story. Here's my name. I'm the prison lady and a link to the Steve Pakin thingy. 30 minutes later, he had watched the entire interview, contacted me through Facebook Messenger and said, I love your story. I'm passionate about your message. I need to speak to you. I'm in the movie industry. We need to talk. So that's how that happened. Fantastic. That's so exciting. So. Excited as heck. I mean, I just I, like I'm this little girl from 565 Cranbrook Avenue who sat in the basement, was locked in there and got beaten to death. And here I am. Oh my God, I hope my dad is watching. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Phyllis, I really appreciate your time today. I wish you the biggest success with The Prison Lady and the upcoming movie, Wink Wink. There were some excellent lessons in this book. Great story. Congratulations on publication. Thank you so much, Dana. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to be interviewed by you this morning. Thank you. I'm blushing now. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can find Phyllis's book, The Prison Lady, wherever books are sold. You can also find my books, my three memoirs, The Girl in the Gold Bikini about family and food, Murder on My Mind, which is my memoir of menopause, and Spent, which chronicles my disastrous decade as the worst retail manager out there wherever books are sold. Thanks again for giving me your ears.